I appreciate the, the warm introduction. I kind of, I'm not into myself and uh, it's kind of embarrassing to hear of these things, but I am grateful for the honor that you have stretched out to me. <laughs> um, when Hurricane Ian hit Florida, uh, we immediately stepped in there as well by the grace of God. Uh, so far, we've sent uh, the fifth uh, semi full of water, food and water to Naples, um, Fort Myers, Northport, and yesterday we went into Arcadia as well. So by the grace of God, um, as a missionary in Africa, I worked in famines, floods, disasters, and, and I think that that is the right thing to do is you can't say be fed, be warm, be clothed. You've got to do something tangible about it. And so there are certain things that God does for us, and there are certain things that we do for Him as the extension of His heart and compassion. So we've been doing that for many years and uh, made a difference, I think, in many lives through His generosity that is entrusted to us. When I work with the impoverished, and we, we, we do a lot like with Ukraine, um, the refugees, I planted a Bible school in Poland, translated all my books into Polish, and we were able from the graduates to plant 14 churches in Ukraine. When Russia invaded Ukraine, they came to the mother church in Poland. And by the grace of God, I was able to raise $45,000 in food, clothing, hygiene products, as well as put on some care for the women and their children during the day, some, you know, meetings, projects, fun events, so that they could be, while they dealing with the pain and the loss of all things, that we could somehow affect their lives. So, um, you know, God's very good with all these projects. When people do give, 100% goes into the project. I don't keep any administrative fees. And in fact, people give on PayPal. If they give $100, I don't give the $97.53. I give $100. I write off all the write-offs, the operational costs, the fuel, the vehicles, the rental of the equipment to get it to them. I covered that all. I think it was in Houston uh, and in, um, with Katrina. We also, uh, with Katrina, I sent a, the, the big, the big, big, big ones full of um, siding for, for the, uh, drywall. And we just said, come and take what you need. We put up a sign and no one took advantage of it. They came and took what they needed and left for someone else. So I, I'm always thinking of how can I make a difference in someone's pain. And uh, once we've done this immediate triage, we'll go in with bleach and gloves and masks and help people scrub the walls, get rid of the mold, help them rip out the drywall and cart it off to the side of the street and help them get their lives back together by the grace of God. So... Um, yeah, I love doing that. Let me quickly mention my books. They're bold. I'm, my name is Leon, which means lion. And um, I'm as bold as a lion, I guess. Um, I always like to say uh, I'm, I'm a very shy person and um, very meek and mild, just like Jesus. But I can be really bold as well. I can be in your face. I can say it the way it is. I never compromise when God gives me something to do. But I, I don't want to be arrogant. I want to be bold. There's a big difference. And this book addresses the difference between arrogance and bold and the areas we ought to be bold in, to have bold faith, bold prayers, bold leadership, bold vision, bold giving, bold in spiritual warfare. Uh, facing the enemy. So that's that book. Well done.
This, this book has become a handbook to so many leadership teams in raising up their people. Everyone wants Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant, but it implies, number one, that you did something, you did it well, you did it faithfully, and you did it with the servant heart of Jesus. This is my latest book, How Beautiful Are the Feet? And, um, well, this has been my life, carrying the gospel to the nations. Um, When I was saved... I immediately started my ministry on the streets, and then God took me into the villages of Africa, and I've always had this as my mission statement, reaching the lost, discipling the found, building the church. I don't just want to reach the lost. I actually reach the lost to disciple the found, because true evangelism doesn't just get someone to make a decision for Christ, but to become a persuaded follower of Jesus. This book helps you and motivates you to the Great Commission. Uh, At the book table, there are bookmarks. Feel free to take one. All my books are not only available in print, but they can also be purchased digitally on our website uh, in um, e-book. And so that is available as well. We are dealing with a subject called fresh oil, anoint my head with fresh oil. I want to give you a bit of a background to the anointing, just a little bit of theological background, historic background, and then I'm going to get to the crunch of the message, how that we can live the anointed lifestyle. So if it's okay, I'm going to take about five, maybe eight minutes just to give a brief overview of the culture, the Old Testament, and the New Testament anointing, and then I'll get into the Word. In the historic practice, anointing was always with oil. I think maybe tomorrow or the next day, Monday or Tuesday, I'll go into the ingredients in the holy anointing oil. So there is the holy anointing oil, which was not used for common use. In other words, as part of the culture, they would anoint guests when they came into a house with oil. They would wash their feet. They'd anoint their head with oil. It was a way that they bathed and perfumed themselves uh, uh, just as a way of culture. But then there were essentially three anointings. There was the anointing to be a prophet, there was the anointing to be the priest, and there was the anointing to be a king. Anointing always represented ability, authority, being set aside for that office. Uh, When King Saul was anointed as a king, he stepped out of his office and he started to sacrifice because of his impatience. Remember that? It wasn't his anointing to be a priest. He was anointed to be a king. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. We say Messiah. He, right from the beginning, the anointed one was promised, who was all of those. He was a prophet, priest, and king. And so uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is the anointed one. Christ, anointed one. The Antichrist, the anti, the anointing, or you would say anti-anointing, anti. The, the force that goes against the anointed one, or in our cases, the anointed ones. The disciples were first called Christians or anointed ones in Antioch. So they were viewed as little anointed ones. There was the big anointed one, Messiah, Jesus, and the Christians were viewed as the little anointed ones, the followers of the anointed one. That's quite a great reputation to have. 
And so before we were called Christians, we were called disciples, which is part of my, my thing. We are not called to just make members and attendees, although that is part of the process. We are to make disciples, persuaded followers who are anointed in Christ Jesus. So we see that um, there was ordinary use of anointing to bathe, to welcome guests, and then there was the official use, which was to inaugurate kings, prophets, and priests. And then there was also the odd occasion in Scripture where objects were anointed with oil, such as when Jacob anointed the pillar at Bethel, he poured oil, thus saying it is a separated, anointed place. In the New Testament, of course, we know that we can, if there be any sick among you, call on the elders of the church, they will anoint you with oil. The disciples, the apostles also went out with oil, anointing the sick. So there, this was practiced even before the baptism in the Spirit. And so we know that there is the material anointing, but it is all to me pointing to the spiritual, which is found in the life of the Spirit-filled believer. And so um, that's where we need to understand for us when I say anointed with fresh oil, it is not just a personal refreshing, but it is coming into a spiritual encounter that refreshes, revives, renews your faith, your ministry, your pursuit for God. Old Testament, definitely many anointings. New Testament, I believe the ultimate is found. The anointed life is the Spirit-filled life. Now, in... 1 John chapter 2 and verse 27, John writes concerning authentic New Testament believers, As for you, the believers, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Of course, this is not discrediting pastors and teachers. It is not discrediting the need to be discipled, taught, and trained. He is saying, because of the anointing, if there is no one giving you instruction or teaching you, you are being taught by the Holy Spirit because He will lead you and guide you into all truth and will make real the things that Jesus has already given to you. So He's always teaching you, leading you, and guiding you, but that's not to take away from the need to be taught and trained. I had a very zealous believer say to me, I don't need a pastor. I don't need a teacher because the Holy Spirit is my teacher. I said, well, then that would be very confusing. Why would God give gifts to men and offices and callings to equip the saints to teach and to train them? Why would He nullify the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you? Why would the early church gather to sit at the feet of the apostles to be taught and trained? If we only had the Holy Spirit to teach us. So not talking, taking away from the importance of the indwelling and the empowering of the Spirit that will teach us, lead us, and guide us. But God also gives us anointed giftings, ministries, to teach and train us. These two shouldn't be in competition. These two shouldn't be in contradiction. They should be saying one and the same thing. John also says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So they knew that their lives were anointed. Go with me, if you would, 
in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 1 with that little bit of a backdrop concerning the anointing. Let me get into where I want to go today. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? So Saul was handpicked, selected, called by God to be the first king of Israel because he stepped out of his anointing, dominated by the fear of man, compromising the word of God. He was rejected as king. In his place, the prophet was sent to anoint David, the future king of Israel. Incidentally, in this story, we'll read about David receiving his first anointing. He received three anointings as king. But this is the first that we're reading about. How long will you mourn for a backslidden king? I've got something new for you. There is a message in there, isn't there? For the modern day church, I believe that we cannot live in the past or from our failures, or from predecessors that have led us down, we have to get up and move on. That there's always a fresh oil. There's always a new move of God. Even the old that is good, that didn't fail, you cannot live in the old. You can learn from it. But we are here now, the product of their lives, the product of their ministries, both the failed and the successful. We are the product of someone else's ministry. We are the product of the empty tomb, the cross, the risen, resurrected Christ. We are the product of the upper room, the baptism, the empowerment of the Spirit. So much has been placed within us. And then he says, there is more. <laughs> I will do a new thing. Deep cries out to deep. I'll take you further than you've ever been. I will take you beyond where your predecessors have gone. Pastor Rick and I have been discussing John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth, Amy Simple McPherson, and A.A. Uh, A. Allen, William Branham, and many other great old-time revivalists, healing ministries, leaders of the church. Some of them failed, even though they started out really good, which therein is a lesson for all of us. It's not how we start, it's how we finish. And we can criticize them, but the truth is, with the anointing, there comes tremendous responsibility. And it's kind of like that saying that moves around pastors in particular and leaders, the, the greater the anointing, the greater the assignments of hell against that life, the bigger the demons they face. So um, it is really important to be praying for leaders because they bear great responsibility and the prayers of the saints as it work and protect them not only from the demonic onslaughts, but from themselves, that the Holy Spirit would protect the leaders. I throw that out there. But we are the product of some tremendous leaders in history. But as far as I can see, his name is not I was. He's not the God of I was, I once moved through Smith Wigglesworth, John G. Lake. His name is I am. That God's eyes are going to and fro looking for hearts that He could trust. That kind of power. And could we say more? Because the latter house will be greater than the former. What His name is not only Alpha, but it is Omega. <laughs> He who began a good work will complete it. He is not 
subject to failure. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We are not going to leave planet earth weak, beaten up, defeated. Even though leaders may fail and fall, the church will stand. Because it is not built on their reputation or what they did. It is built on the name of Jesus Christ. I have compassion for men and women that have failed, who have walked in leadership. Why do I say that? Because I'm a leader. And when you think you stand, you are in a very dangerous place. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and His mercies on you every morning. But I do believe that God's looking for vehicles that He can empower in last day's glory. I don't think the church is going to leave as a failure. It's going to be so highly anointed. The, the world is very wicked and corrupt. I've been thinking of just doing an article, just cutting out headlines of the perverse behavior that has become almost a daily read. Parents mutilating their children, cooking them in microwaves, cutting them up. I mean, perverse. No different to those that took their children to the idols of Moloch and offered them in fire. You understand? It's happening in our perverse society. Children, wives, husbands, our police force being entrapped, ambushed. Corruption everywhere in government, in society, in business, all around us. Billions of dollars being lost to corruption. Apparently very little accountability. Criminals walking free in days, in hours. But one thing I do know when I look at all these headlines, and I barely want to look at even the headlines anymore, it's so discouraging. But when I do look at them, I remind myself of this one great truth, that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So if our world is very dark and very perverse, which it is, there is great hope for the church, for you and me. Because God is not going to be outdone by the perversions and the corruptions and the darkness because He is light and He is love and He is great and His mercy endures forever and He's got a plan for His people. I don't believe we're leaving planet earth in failure. I believe there is an anointing for the last day's church that is greater than the infant church. I may be wrong. But if that was the infant church on Acts chapter 2, then the last day's church, if I read the whole counsel of God's Word, what begins as a seed becomes a harvest. The little becomes much in kingdom culture. So where we began and where we end if we can keep our hearts pure and open, the possibilities are mind-blowing for the last day's church. Is it possible in the last day's church that men and women will be raised, ordinary men and women, not necessarily apostolic leaders, although I believe that they should walk in great authority and power. But is it possible that Stevens and Phillips and others will emerge, ordinary people stepping forward that will be given divine opportunity to walk into cities and neighborhoods and through the power of God as anointed men and women heal the sick, cast out demons in such authority that word will spread and everyone will, because let's face it, everyone is sick. Is it possible that we can enter into that greater 
and fresh oil that will pave the way for world evangelization and the shaking of the nations? Is it possible that entire cities could come to Christ? I believe it is. Why I say that is because look at technology, communication. What would sometimes take weeks and months to get out there could be out there in seconds and minutes. People are videoing crimes taking place, posting it there and then. People can be videoing authentic miracles, posting it there and then. People will be jumping into their cars, coming because they are sick and they are dying and they're looking for solutions. Their medical aides don't have enough hope. Their doctors and surgeons, as great as they are doing their best, are not enough. People want to be made whole. People want liberation for their lives. They want joy. They want peace. They're looking for it. And I believe if we would seek God, this generation could come into the greatest of all moves of God ever recording from the beginning of time to the physical return of Jesus Christ. That's the faith I'm contending for. That faith that was once delivered to the saints, that we would walk in world-changing authority and anointing. Saul failed. David was raised up. He was no perfectionist himself by any means, but that's another story. In other words, the anointing does not guarantee character or permanent stability. Our lives are vulnerable, but doesn't take away from the anointing. The anointing is without repentance. In other words, the gifts of God placed upon people is not based on their perfection. It is based on the perfection of Christ's work of grace that calls us in spite of ourselves. Otherwise, there would be no hope for any of us. <laughs> Who would be worthy? Who would be able? Who could get the job done? It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we are called. It is by grace that we are kept. And it is by grace that we are highly anointed. He says, fill your horn with oil. I like that. Fill your horn with oil. Because that's how they carried liquid. Today everyone has a Yeti with a sealed lid. That would be, the, you know, the way you carry liquid. Those days they carried it either in a pouch made out of skin that was sewn and sealed, or they carried it in a horn that had a stopper. Fill your horn with oil. Why fill it? Because he's not going to put a little dab of oil when he anoints someone. He's going to pour it out. If you ever got to an African ordination, it's not like us. They get a towel and they wrap it around the people. And, and Africans don't typically come to church for an ordination dressed like us casually. They will come dressed in suits, expensive suits, and they will take a jar of oil and they will pour it liberally on the head of those that they're anointing. Why? Because that's what it says here. Fill your horn with oil because we are not the recipients of a drop. You know, we, we in the church today, you'll find most pulpits will have a little jar of oil and we'll go down the line, we'll make a little cross or a little dab on the forehead. That is not what is happening here, people. Which is important because it's speaking of the overflow of the abundance. We do not get a droplet of Holy Spirit. We get the fullness of His fullness we have received. <laughs> Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And the Bible says that he found David 
a man after his own heart. So even when David was a boy, God called him a man, selected him, called him, and then this is the process. So Samuel goes, he, he, he gets instructed, this is not the one, this is not the one God looks at, the, does not see as a man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So as we're going into the fresh oil and the anointing, God's looking at your heart today. It's not how we look on the outside, because out of the heart come the real issues of life. Purify your heart. Cleanse your hearts under the word and the grace and the blood of Jesus today. And then in verse 13, when David arrives, and the Lord said to the prophet, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. <clears throat> then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And here it is. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The oil is really just a, a point of contact symbolizing this deeper and greater empowerment that comes from the Spirit. And the Spirit the oil representing the Spirit. The Spirit then acknowledging that ordination, that separation came upon David. Go with me to the New Testament and let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. We'll start in 3 and then we'll go to 4. John the Baptist is preaching and people are coming to him. He's preparing the way for something greater, for someone greater, whose sandals he's not even worthy to unloose. John himself has been filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb as the unborn child in the womb of his mother recognized the unborn child in the womb of Mary in that collision of spirit. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? That collision of spirit. The power of God comes upon John and he's filled with the spirit even in his mother's womb. And hence, we fight and are a voice for the unborn. It's not that we hate those who struggle with what to do with the unborn child. It's not because we're vicious and mean people. It's because we understand that is, that is not just a fetus. That is a life that is called by God. And it's amazing Today I, I saw an article, because I'm a wildlife photographer, um, I, I love nature, I love wildlife, and it can certainly be wild. But I saw this short clip of a killer whale that, you know how they go on the shore to get a seal, and this young inexperienced killer whale went up on the shore and got beached and the tide was going out and it couldn't get back. There's this guy coming past on a yacht and he hears the scream and he sees it's a killer whale stranded. He is a conservationist. He calls other conservationists and they, they fight for nine hours to keep this killer whale alive by putting wet sheets on it, keeping it fresh, pouring water on it, getting a pump, putting water. When the pump eventually breaks and burns out from nine hours of use, they use buckets to keep this, this young killer whale alive, which is an amazing feat, seeing value in the creation of God. You understand? 
And at the end of the day, these people were so overjoyed, they were weeping when they were able to get it back into the water and reunite it to its pod. And my thought was, if we could get the Christian church to have that level of commitment and passion for the gospel and for the household of faith, that we wouldn't question nine hours of prayer and work to reach one, to save one. You know, that they will do for a, a precious created being that plays a apex role in the ecological balance and order of our oceans. It is not unimportant. It is the manifestation of the Creator's plan. Someone has to protect those orcas. Someone has to protect the great whites. Someone has to protect the whales. Someone has to be a voice for the abandoned, abused dogs and cats. People do that because we were given by God the responsibility to tend to the earth and it's create the created order. So I'm not, I'm not a, 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 accusing them of their passion to save a whale, but it challenges me. How far would we go to reach the lost, to seek God for the fullness. I think we are mostly pretty shallow. Very few would pay that kind of a price for a prayer meeting. Nine hours of praying to reach the lost. They did that to save one creature. When you think hundreds beach every year, because of genetic dysfunction, I don't know what causes them to do this, but be that as it may, an interesting fact, for what it's worth, is great whites, the numbers are dropping astronomically because these predators, these orcas are coming into once dominated great white areas and they're killing off the great whites. There's this big battle going on. Interesting, isn't it? Everything is in a state of weird changes. The whole earth is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, for the church to become the church so that Messiah can return. Hallelujah. The work must be done. John the Baptist is preaching. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus who stepped into the water Oh, my point was, we must be a voice for the unborn babies. It's going to be a critical part of the next elections. Um, and I believe that we have a right. I know people will go to jail for killing an unborn puppy. In other words, they put greater value on a dog than on a human being. And that's sad. That's a sad day in our world that you can go to jail for aborting puppies. Uh, you, you don't go to jail for that, but you'll go to jail for standing up to be a voice. FBI raids upon those who just worship outside a center. Come on. Something is wrong. Jesus steps into the water the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. The voice of heaven comes, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. He returns in the power of the Spirit in verse 14. In verse 15, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And his message was from the prophet Isaiah, chapter, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David when he was anointed. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. When was He anointed? When the Holy Spirit came down in bodily form. He was anointed. He was separated. He's now at the age of 30. He is allowed to conduct himself in the priestly ministry. 30 years old. His ministry begins as an anointed carrier of God's Word. Because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who oppress, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture that I've just read to you is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the anointing has come upon me, the anointed one. They struggled with that concept because they didn't mind David coming as a warrior to liberate them from Rome, but they didn't want a kingdom to be established in the hearts of men that would bring them back to God. They wanted liberation from their enemies where the plan of God was to liberate them from the chains of sin, from dead works, and to turn them to the living God. So we see that Jesus' ministry was anointed. Am I correct? We know of Jesus of Nazareth, a man anointed with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He operated in the anointing. The, the Scriptures record the importance of the anointing. Even Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. It is recorded they recognized the anointing upon Jesus. Which brings us to where I want to try to wrap up tonight is the New Testament life is the anointed life. Because we are Christians. We are anointed ones. We are not just disciples and students of Jesus. We are Christians. We're anointed like Jesus. Can you catch that? You see, the disciples were first called Christians. The disciples are what? Persuaded followers of Jesus. They've abandoned everything and made Him the Lord of their life. They are students of Jesus. They are students of the Word of God. But there is a dimension that is also added, and they were first called Christians, anointed ones. It was actually used, I think, in a disparaging way. It was kind of like mocking them for the supernatural works of God in their life, trying to humiliate them, but it was actually a badge of honor. And so all Christians ought to be spirit-filled or anointed ones. Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high. We could say Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Because the oil, the anointing, is an empowerment. It's the ability and the authority of God to operate as an agent in your office. Their office was either a prophet, priest, or king. And we operate in the high priestly ministry. The oil that was on the head flowed down the beard to the edge of the garment. That's why we operate in the priestly ministry of Jesus. Anointed as the Father has sent me. 
how was Jesus sent? As a man filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, who went about with a commission, with a strategy, and he did good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. How do we go about in the same way as men and women that are God-filled, touched with the power of God? That's how we win our world. The strategy of heaven has not changed. I, I would like to say this in closing as we go into a time of ministry. Laying on of hands is a point of contact. There are other points of contact. The shadow of the apostles was a point of contact. Oil is a point of contact. Um, handkerchiefs, aprons are a point of contact for people to come under the touch of heaven. For me, laying on of hands is more than just a formality. The same as for me, ordination is not just some formality. It is a place of divine empowerment, enablement, acknowledgement of the call of God, releasing people into their destiny. I think everything that we do must be done with intentionality and purpose. Laying on of hands is not just some token Christian practice. It is a point of contact where the recipient is being touched by the hand. But I like to imagine the nail-scarred hand of Jesus superimposed over our hand. It is not just us touching you, but it is God in us touching you. It is God through us touching you. That's why it's impartation and activation. Now, there is a responsibility on those that minister to do it in the right way. We as leaders carry a responsibility to hear from God, to obey God, to not just be ritualistic going through formalities, but to be led by the Spirit. Is that right? We also have an obligation to prepare our lives. We cannot just step up and wing it. Although there are times when we are given opportunity that are unexpected, these suddenies, and we have to interpret what God wants to do, and we have to step up. There are many times I don't always feel adequate in my preparation, but I know that there's 50 years of preparation in the Spirit. I've got to live out of that, out of the Spirit. Out of the heart come the issues of life. I love to study. I love to make notes. I love to have a strategy, a structure. But I can't be dependent on this. I have to be led of the Spirit of God. So we are men and women led by the Spirit of God. When we step forward, we are the agents that God has chosen to use for that moment. He will have other agents in your life also. We are not in competition with different anointings, different ministries. That's carnality. We recognize that there's certain uniquenesses on each gifting. But there's also an obligation upon you, the recipients. There's an obligation on us, the ministers, to operate in purity without any agenda. But there's a, uh, there is a responsibility upon you how you are to come forward to receive. I want to touch on that very briefly. Because I've laid hands on, <laughs> I can't count now, over the years, so many heads. And I, was it you who said something like, you can lay hands, it's like laying hands on a piece of metal, a piece of steel. There is nothing happening. I call that, <laughs> forgive me, Laying hands on a dead head. <laughs> There's just nothing. I want to put it this way. I think I'm fairly sensitive to the spirit realm. And I was mentoring a young man that I'm raising up 
to operate in these dimensions of authority. And I said, walk next to me, and I'm going to question you afterwards what you feel. Not that we walk by feelings, but there's an interpretation between the spiritual and the natural. I feel what God is doing, certain impressions, certain things. So I, I've learned how to interpret God's work in, in me and in the, in the community of faith and the environment. So I'm walking down the line and I'm praying. And there are times when I lay hands and there's absolutely nothing. I might as well be laying hands on this pulpit. There's nothing coming from God through me into that person. I'm sure you're nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, listen to this. I'll go lay hands and as I step away, there's this bounce back onto me. It's like a stagger. And I know that if you don't receive the prophet, you can't get the prophet's reward. And he said, when you go into a house, if they don't receive you, it will come back to you. And I think when I'm laying hands on a, excuse the phrase, a deadhead, a piece of steel, what happens is as I walk away, what I gave from God bounces back onto me and I can barely stand. And I've used and I've operated in these dimensions for years. I stagger to get my posture back. So I know I'm giving something away. I know something is going into the hungry heart, the open heart, the healed heart. These are critical words. I use critical a lot, Leon. But these are critical words. The healed heart, the humble heart. The broken heart, the surrendered heart, because you're receiving not by feelings, but by faith. And faith is the product of the recreated spirit. So you lay in hold of something in the spirit dimension. So when I lay hands, or anyone lays hands, you ought to be there with a couple of things happening on the inside of you. Number one, you should be coming forward in faith, believing that something is going to happen. Now, whether you stand or fall is not what is important. What is important is that you receive. I say when people fall under the power of God, some people call it slain in the spirit. I don't like being slain in the spirit because slain means... <laughs> I prefer just saying falling out under the power of God. When Jesus, in the bright light, encountered Saul on the Damascus Road, he and those that were traveling with him fell to the ground. And then Jesus said, get up, stand on your feet. So there's a time to go down, there's a time to get up. When you do fall, enjoy the ride. <laughs> if you don't, don't get into guilt. Don't stand thinking, Wow, I'm unworthy. I have been rejected. How do I know this? Because I deal with people every day who are firing these kind of questions in their heart. And I'm interpreting it. And I'm hearing from them after the meeting. Why didn't I fall? Everyone fell. Why didn't I fall? Did I not receive? Is there something wrong with me? If you don't come forward with faith, there's something wrong with you. If you come forward closed, shut up, maybe pressured by your wife, by your husband, by your mother, by your father, you come forward, but you're not really wanting to be there, you may not receive because you don't want to be there. I know this, that when people came to Jesus, they came desperate, but they came in faith because he always said, according to your faith, be it unto you. So it wasn't his faith, it was their faith that was activating his faith, and then divine virtue flowed through him into them. He worked it, but they had faith. So when you come forward, you come expecting. You come in faith. If you feel, praise God. If you don't feel, praise God. <laughs> because you're in faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's not always felt or seen, but it's done.
tell you a little story. A young, a young man. <laughs> I was a young man at that stage. We had a great preacher. He was a, a what we call Archeus, um, which is Apostolic Faith Church. It's kind of like the overflow of John G. Lake's ministry in South Africa. Um, very closely associated with the Assembly of God, the Full Gospel, or the Church of God. All very, they're all virtually the same in doctrine and practice. The Archeus, precious traditionalists in the Pentecostal sense. They have their roots in John G. Lake in the early pioneer days, the overflow of Azusa Street. Um Tinikronia. Um Tinikronia. Um is uncle. We in South Africa, our culture is to call older people Um or Tani, auntie or uncle. Um, it's a term of respect. So, Um Tinikronia, he had been in the ministry a long time, but he was a very powerful man of God. I have yet to meet a person that came into contact with him that didn't go out under the power of God. <laughs> Amazing. You'd walk, if he walked past you, if he, if he touched you or shook your hand, you were going down. I watched people stand bracing themselves with the mentality, I am not going down, and I just watched them fall. Wumtini was a good man, a godly man, a God-seeking man, but he felt like his ministry had reached a stagnation point. He wasn't going anywhere. So he separated himself, got into the prayer room, and began to seek God. I don't know how long it took, quite a few days, but there came a point when an angel stepped into the room with a golden flask of oil and poured it over his life. Well, of course, he had an encounter in the spirit. And God said to him, you're going to operate in great dimensions of authority and power in the spirit, the anointed life. Wumtini was a gift. There was a grace. There was a power upon his life. So what I'm saying is there are certain times you can be in unbelief. You can even be standing resisting. And if that gift is in operation, you will go down. The environment, can, the corporate anointing can create the atmosphere that even skeptics, critics will go down. I was in a meeting in Illinois, and people were being hit by the power of God, and these, these people came in, and they were just waiting for me to say something wrong, do something wrong, that they could criticize what was happening. I didn't know who they were in the beginning, but God told me they'd come into the meeting. Then, as the meeting started flowing in the Holy Ghost, I could see them sitting there taking notes, seething. You could feel the atmosphere of their unbelief. So they got up to leave the meeting at some point. And the meeting was so wild, no one even recognized. It just looked like they were going to the washroom. But I knew what was going on in the spirit. I even knew God told me what church they'd come from. I said, God, please arrest them at the door. Don't let them leave this meeting. That they would know that you are real. And that this is not some kind of a hypnotic state that has been put on people. They walk in out as skeptics, but arrest them. As they got to the door, the power of God hit them. And they fell. They didn't get up until the church was emptied. They could not get up. People couldn't lift them. It was impossible. You could get three men. You couldn't pick them up. They were held down by the hand of God or by the angels of God. So sometimes it is in spite of your faith. It is based on our faith or the gift of faith 
or the atmosphere of that movement. Sometimes skeptics, and you'll see that in Catherine Kuhlman's ministry, people would go in there as hope, but not faith. They would go in there hope, but not really believing it's for them. And they would get their miracle even before the believers would get their miracle. You read it in, their, in her books. And so when I say come in faith, of course you should come in faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. That those that come to Him must believe that He is. And as a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So faith is what's going to attach you to the anointing. But every now and again, even skeptics will receive. Even critics will receive. Even unbelievers will receive. I just throw that out there just to consider. But mostly, people come in faith. So number one, we are coming to Jesus, even though there is a man or a woman who is the point of contact. It's His hand that we are wanting through their hand. Number two, just like Jesus, the virtue flowed through him into that woman, but it was activated by her faith. Come in faith, if at all possible. If you come in unbelief or in criticism, you may have an encounter with God. Saul was on the Damascus Road. He wasn't seeking God. He was seeking to destroy the church. God is the sovereign, and He can do as He wills. But most times, those that got saved came to Jesus seeking, hungering, asking. Number three, create in yourself a huge appetite for God. The measure of your thirst will become the measure of your drink. Little thirst, little drink. Get desperate, you'll get a big drink. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. You who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Drink freely. There are so many scriptures about having an appetite for God that creates in you this capacity for what God wants to do. The greater the capacity, the greater the download in you. Now, for me, when the move of God came, I was quite a skeptic, a critic of it. Although I wasn't a vocal critic, I was internalizing. I almost vocalized it, but I was arrested, and out of my spirit came what I think is of no importance, but what does God think about this? Which took me into my office for a period of 80 days, barely coming out, I lived in a Daniel fast for 80 days, mainly in the Word, mainly in books and commentaries on revivals past, studying what God did, how He did it, and the manifestations. After 80 days, I was so hungry. I have never been as hungry as I was at that point in my life. I've always been committed, gung-ho, all in. But I was so hungry. God was working through me, but I hadn't had that encounter of holy joy, the anointed joy. One day in a business meeting, it hit me. When it hit me, I understood that I'd created an 80-day capacity. <laughs> I was done. So, I've learned how to become and live in a perpetual hungry and thirsty state. If you have already received from God and you have an anointing, don't think I've arrived. There's always more for you. And, and so we are not just coming to receive, but we're coming to reactivate or we're coming to expand or to increase or as we would say, to get the more. Lastly, when you come forward and you receive, this isn't the end of the day. This is the beginning of some new bold steps 
that are to be taken. You receive, so you have it for you, through you, in you, but now through you for someone else as well. And that's the way you create this perpetual flow, is by staying in the lane, staying in the prayer room, staying in the place of stirring the gifts. So that is my advice to you. I'm going to hand over to Pastor. He will say what he would like to say, and then I am going to pray for you if you would like hands to be laid upon you to receive. I trust that you got something from the ministry. The horn is filled with oil tonight. I have something to give you. (laughs) 